I'd like to pursue this question now of the chiastic structures. I prefer the phrase introverted Hebrew parallelism, or IHP, I think we have to call it. Uh, just the chiast, the word chiasm is a Greek word and used apparently amongst the Greeks for those short switchovers at a verse level, whereas the Hebrew pattern is much grander, it's, it's more uh, large scale and obviously predated the Greeks. And what we've been reviewing today is this concept of parallelism. We've looked at regular parallelism. There's an example up on the wall here. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor kings to search it out. Okay? And it's been put on two uh, pieces of wood, not as the verse is printed in the Bible, but as the line is truly set out properly. And interestingly, when you look at that, that's the word word and that's the word word when you look at the Hebrew. So I think it goes, it's the glory of God to conceal a word, but the honor of kings to search out a word. So it makes it even more a parallelism, a regular parallelism. So we are used to that, even though we may not have put a, a name to it. You know, you've got it on your fridge door. You know, we're, we're used to the concept of parallel statements and one explaining or challenging the other, you know, making us think, giving us one thought uh, out in two lines. But we've also then noticed that it gets more complicated. And of course, you know, it's asking too much really to say, set it out in five minutes from from scratch without any notice or warning or practice. But, you know, you've managed to do that, basically, you know. And it's taken, you know, this one, we put this one up on the website, I don't know, months or a year before I found out that it was too crude and that there was a better way of separating out verse 15 and verse 18 into their four component parts, which themselves uh, were regular parallelisms, you know. So that's, that made it look even more uh, elegant, you might say, even more pristine. Uh, and it then draws us in to the center. So this is both regular, you might call that step parallelism between verse 15 and verse 18 of Isaiah 28, and then obviously introverted reverse parallelism with a central point, which is the point. What does God want us to learn from that chapter? That to believe, building on the rock, and we're not going to be blown away. Now that's, you know, that's a, you might say, a simple first principle message, but scripture there to give us faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is a wonderful passage of scripture. And we've looked at others, uh, and, you know, uh, in fact, some of you are improving on what I've got on the slides and can see even more um, elegance in this, maybe dividing that up again. So some of the ones we didn't look at earlier, I think everyone would see this eventually. A chiasm at a verse level. 
Do you notice the phrase reversal? I think when you see that, it's one of the strong clues that we're on the right track. So if you notice heavens and earth, and then the very unusual earth and heavens. So you could actually separate heavens and earth onto different lines because, you know, the phrase heavens and earth, that's the norm, is reversed at the end of the chapter, at the end of the verse, into earth and heavens, pushing us back, pushing us back to the day that the Lord God created or made all things. And that's one of the Toledoth passages which divides the book of Genesis into, is it 11 sections or 12 sections? I can't remember. Right. So that, that's that. This is the setting out of 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. What we've got there is the word of God, which is incorruptible. Uh, and I, I paralleled it with this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The word of God which liveth and abideth forever, that's the word of the Lord which endureth forever. So I've, I've sort of drawn attention to the word in, in the beginning and the word at the end. Then moving in, that lives and abides forever there and forever there. Contrast the central two parallel statements, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower thereof falleth away. That's a pretty neat and attractive passage of scripture, isn't it? There's something about that is like looking at um, like looking at a flower. It talks about the flower. It's like looking at a flower. You know, with, with the outer petals and then the inner uh, stamen and so on. It just, it's my imagination. I mentioned about Exodus chapter 3. Uh, this is just to give you a flavor. It's just too big to put on a slide. So you can see that this is J. J is the center. So if you followed that back, you're going to go way back. Uh, to find A, you've got to go into the previous or later chapters. And you can see that, starting at verse 13, go down to verse 15, the repetition of, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you. Yahweh, God of your fathers, hath sent me unto you. So that phrase, the phrasing is recurring later on. Sure, we say, repetition, for emphasis. Okay, good, but there's more than that. So you move in, it says, and what, when they'll say, what is his name, what shall I say unto them? Well, this is what you'll say unto them. I will be, hath sent Who shall I say sent me? Say, I will be, hath sent me. But actually, it's not uh, in the same order. It's reversed order, isn't it? And then God said unto Moses, I will be who I will be. And he said, so God said, God said. So they sort of go together and draw attention to this remarkably amazing statement, I will be who I will be. But that's just the central portion. If you push it out further, you'll see 
parallels going out and out and out, like, almost like ripples on a pond when somebody's thrown a stone in. You know, you get this. Uh, where's the centre? Well, it's in the middle. Uh, that's where the stone's been thrown, uh, and it ripples out. I put this one in. I'm not quite sure why it was, it was there <laughs> in nice slides. This is uh, an academic source one. I suppose I put it in to show that uh, there are um, academics who are publishing this data. And this is from the website. It says, previously, RS, that's my brother-in-law, Richard Snelling, he's, he posted one. And subsequently, I found in a website called academia.edu that somebody's PhD or their MD or whatever had incorporated that same pattern. So what I'm saying is, Brother Richard <laughs> saw that during the Bible readings. There are academics studying it and getting degrees from finding it. Uh, so uh, point being that I think they're real. It's not just the imagination of a few people. And you found them once. Now, I know I told you passages where they were already, I thought they were already there. So in a sense, that fixed it because you found what I asked you to find. <laughs> but you're independent enough uh, and strong enough to say, there's nothing there. It's imagination. But you haven't said that. You might say, oh, I'm still not 100% sure, which is good. Good, you know. Something to think about and review and uh, take stock of. What this is, Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 10. If you look at the actual Hebrew, uh, sorry, Greek, if you look at the Greek word order, you'll, you'll see that Melchizedek comes right at the end of the sentence. So that parallels this Melchizedek. Yes, that Melchizedek. Who met Abraham? Who met him? To whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Yes, he paid tithes in Abraham. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And here men that die receive tithes. But that man didn't have a recorded end of life. It's witnessed that he liveth. Right, so that's talking about Melchizedek lives. Yes, he lives. He abides a high priest continually. Consider how great this man was. Right? He's better than Abraham. That's what he's better than Abraham. That's how great he is. You can't get better than Abraham. The father of the faithful. This man was greater because he received tithes of Abraham. Consider how great this man was, right? And then he says, uh, because uh, they that are of the sons of Levi receive the office of priests have commanded to take tithes of the people, uh, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them, receive tithes. So the first part, they take tithes, right? The second part, Melchizedek received tithes. So it's, 
the center is not one center. It's a contrast between the Levitical order, which is a descendant of Abraham that received tithes, and Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the father of Levi, gave tithes. So the structure just absolutely shouts out what the whole point of it is. The Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Aaronic priesthood, even though the Aaronic priesthood descends from Abraham. You can imagine the Jews saying, oh, come on. You can't tell us the, uh, the Aaronic, the Levitical priesthood is, is somehow second class. This is Abram's line. This is Abram's priestly line. He says, yeah, but Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek, and the lesser gives tithes to the greater. That means Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. You mean there's another priesthood greater than anything descended from Abraham? Yes. The Melchizedek priesthood made in the text to appear as the son of God. That's, so, the, so what I'm trying to show to you now is that the structure is not independent of the interpretation. It's not a gloss. It's not a, uh, just a way of making it look interesting. The structure of thought is the interpretation. You're not having to make an interpretation. You're just having to follow the points that are there. They will explain themselves, rightly understood. I want to just take you through now some of the comments that I've had uh, over the time right, where you know, people have said, well, <laughs> it can't be right. It can't be common because. What's your reaction? Anybody want to add to my list before I show it? I haven't noticed it before. That's on my list. <laughs> Any other points? The pioneers haven't written about it. Now, I don't know whether Dr. Thomas did or didn't know about it. It was sort of discovered uh, during his lifetime and may not have been discussed widely. Uh, I would have thought he would have known about it, really. Right. Thing, you know. Okay. How could someone have written that way? Right. Well, I try. So, if you're emphasizing the role of the the writer, say nobody writes like that. Yeah. Nobody could write like that. How would you get your mind around that? You know, uh, even if you had a group of people doing it, you know. Okay. Sure. They well, they might say, uh, yeah. They might say, even if it is there, I don't need to notice it because it's just one of those. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Greek. Most of us don't. It's not for us. It's of no practical use. Okay. And you can anticipate there'd be other, other things. You know, what, one of the, well, I'll show you what, what I come across. So it's different. You know, it's strange. It's weird. I, I, it doesn't sound right to me, you know. Things going back to front, upside down, inside out. <laughs> yeah. Or they could say, 
And this is what one brother did say to me. I've been studying the Bible for 40 years and I've never seen it. It can't be right. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was that sense of, of possible. I, I've been studying for 40 years. I've never come across it. Of course, he's never read Companion Bible. <laughs> or First Mansfield. <laughs> This is, a, this is a real issue. I can't find them myself. In other words, if, if it's right, I ought to be able to see them. I ought to have been able to see them in the past. And now you've told me about them, I ought to be able to see them now, and, and I still can't see them. Right? But uh, it is a common experience that people take a while to tune into it. And I likened it to, you know those pictures made up of dots? And you look at this picture, and then after a while, when your focal legs adjust, you see actually it's horses jumping in the waves. <laughs> and actually, the first time you look at the picture, it's just colored dots. It doesn't look like there's anything there. And then you stare and stare, and you're told, you know, don't focus on it, look through it, look through it. And then you look through those pictures, and suddenly you see the picture. It's a little bit like that. Um, certainly that was being voiced. It's too academic. It, That's uh, been studying the Bible for 40 years. I've also heard it said that I'm a fourth-generation Christadelphian. Hi. You know, yeah. If you're, not, if you're not studying and doing it, you know, I mean, you know, I guess you are, but it's... Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. I'm a fifth-generation Christadelphian. I didn't know about it until five years ago. So, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 that, that you, obviously you can't sustain any of these arguments. They're obviously not valid, really, because there's loads of things we don't know, and we'll admit we don't know, and we have yet to learn. Um, you know, there's brethren who are looking at the book of Revelation, never heard of Brother Thomas's ideas on the book of Revelation. It's never been taught in their meeting. They've never read Eureka. But, you know, and somebody comes along and says, oh, did you know that that's what this passage is about? They don't, well, you wouldn't expect them to say, ah, oh, that can't be right, I've never heard of it. <laughs> or it can't be right, my father never told me. You just say, well, you know, have a look at this and see. Because it is right. You know, it's there. Um, the too academic one, you know, it is, it is an issue because... I'm an academic. I worked uh, as a professor of medicine for many years. And people say, oh, there he goes. Look, it's nothing to do with medicine. And I don't know Hebrew, and I don't know Greek. I use the same Strong's Concordance as, as the most basic Bible student uses. Right? It's nothing to do with academia. It's actually, yes, some scholars wrote about it, and I've read what they've had to say. But what has impressed us is that when we just do the Bible readings together, we were seeing them. And when, you know, I said to my brother, have you heard of this? No. Tell me, show me. He said, hey, I, I can see one, you know. Uh, and, and then you say to others in the wider family about it, and they say, oh, look, there's one. And we started to realize that they were there. It wasn't even you had to dig. It was just there on the surface. It just didn't recognize what I was looking at. Now, hopefully, today, you might have had that experience. You might have said, 
I never would have thought that was there, but I believe it is there. That Matthew 13 passage. <laughs> yeah, it's an extraordinary one. Let me just go back to that one. Oh, help. Let me just go back to that one. Now, I will, and the website does make reference to academic sources. I have to be very careful here. I'm not commending everyone reading academic sources. There's, you know, a brother told me the danger last uh, brother we were with recently, he talked about being educated beyond our intelligence, right? And how easy it is with the internet to be educated beyond our intelligence. You know, yes, we can pick up all sorts of bits and pieces. Uh, it might seem clever, but we're not really trained in that. Now, that would be a danger if this was an academic thing. But I think these are looking at patterns of word and thought in the pages of Scripture. And they're there. It's not a matter of being academic or not being academic. And because people think it can't be right, they sometimes say we're imposing it on Scripture. We are forcing a pattern onto the Scriptures. And you may think, well, yes, you know, you are indenting sentences and you are breaking up sentences and you're coloring in certain words and highlighting them. That's simply a tool to hear what's going on. My answer to that is simple. Chapters and verses have been imposed on Scripture. They weren't there. And now I have to read this with a numerical sequence that drives me forward when I do I should be stopping and going backwards. So that's an answer to that. Now, that's, that's a subtle one, isn't there? It can't be there because I said it wrong, <laughs> if it's true. Now, it's, that's, that would be unfair. Look, we do the best we can. We try and hear what the scriptures are saying. And even if we don't recognize the pattern overtly, it's quite possible that the patterns themselves are communicating thoughts in the right way to us. Because we're reading the, because we don't just read a verse and then another verse, we actually do read the passage. It is actually the same passage we're reading. <laughs> when somebody says, oh, I knew that anyway. Yes, you only knew it anyway because you read the same passage. <laughs> All we're trying to do is point out why and how that passage says what you know it means. It's just being a bit more reflective. On the other side of, uh, uh, sort of the, the approach, somebody said to me, yeah, Bullinger's done it all. In other words, implication, we don't need to worry about it. Bullinger's done it all. Uh, well, have a look at Bullinger and see if they're right. And this one comes from non-Christadelphian sources that uh, people who I've communicated with on the web on it, and they do believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding them. And certainly one of the people who, who does that, I look at what they do and I don't agree with them very often. So what am I doing? Disagreeing with the Holy Spirit or pointing out that it could have been the Holy Spirit that got it wrong? Uh, so I think, you know, we don't believe the Holy Spirit is guiding us except in the sense that Scripture interprets Scripture and is guiding us by comparing Scripture with Scripture to find out the true meaning of the passage. So, 
That's what we're doing. We're not, we're not inventing some new highfalutin approach to the Bible. We're simply saying, let's look at what we're doing when we compare lines with lines. From what you know, then, can you suggest um, clues to recognizing these patterns? You know, how, how, is there anything that would, uh, we should be looking out for to tell us we're coming across one of these uh, inversions? Gene. Okay, repetition of words, and that is... Um, that is the absolute essence of it, right? Repetition of words. And when you think about that, the rarer the word, the more convincing it's going to be. Because if it's a repetition of the, and, or but, we pay no notice at all. If it's the repetition of God, well, that is a very common word. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, the key thing. Uh, but we would be uh, not putting too much stress on very common words. We'd be putting more stress on less common words, and we'd be t- putting even more stress on key words. In other words, words we know are important. If we saw the word predestination in a sentence, we'd think that's very rare. That's a pretty specific idea. Uh, if that's repeated, maybe there's something going on here. So, repetition of keywords, and maybe they bracket or bookend a, a passage of scripture. So when we see that, I think now we're in business here. If you see that, just you know, this is go that way. <laughs> you come to that point. So the pattern is characterized by repetition of keywords and phrases, or as we've noticed, sometimes by opposites. Sometimes by opposites. You know, light and darkness. Uh, see, not see. And we need to hold on to that because patterns that are based only on concept rather than exact repetition are much more difficult to agree on. Much more difficult. So, you know, a general, yeah, but we say, ah, oh, yeah, but it's sort of saying the same thing. But now it's open to our, so much open to our interpretation. If you've got keywords, everybody agrees. This is a keyword. It's unusual, and it's repeated several times in this passage. It is what the passage is emphasizing. If that gives us the structure, that's much more convincing than if it's a general idea. And the greater number and the more specific those references and those correspondences of, of, are, the more convincing, right? So, two keywords, inverted, well, interesting suggestion, three or four, forming this regular pattern, yeah, much more convincing. And if you get a phrase which is reversed, I do find this very helpful, heaven and earth versus earth and heaven. In Galatians, our father Abraham becomes Abraham our father. I know that nice turns of phrase which give us a, a good clue. 
And usually, not always, you end up with a balance between the arms of, of the chiasm. There's a symmetry, there's, a, there's a, a balance in terms of words. The center is most often, you know, at the midpoint of the text that we have just identified as a unit of thought. Not always, and we can't say that's a law, but it's usually what we find, so we would find that convincing. And the center, with often a regular parallelism, is highly significant. I think this, Shannon, was your major test, and I think that would be, I would think that would be perhaps the, the best test. If, if somebody shows you, oh, I think I found one of these things, and you say, oh, I, can't, I can't see that. I can't see why that's the point. Right? It's not sharp. Now, the experience we had today is that some of the point, the centers I've put up have been sharpened even further by brethren here. So that is, that's impressive to me because that means that I was on the right track. Ah, but it gets even better if you, if you work on it. And of course, you've got to add the test of sense. We, we don't make nonsense of the Bible. We're trying to make the sense of it become clearer. If it is telling something which is contradictory or conflicts with other scripture or just doesn't help us at all, it's probably wrong because the Bible is revelation given to us to be understood, not to bamboozle us and to confuse us and to t send us home in knots. It's, it's quite the other way around. And one of the tests is if you read the A and A together and the B and B together, the C and C together, they should make sense. Right? Because you're talking about the correspondence of those arms of the chiasm. And we would also want that pattern to respect other textual features. And if we were breaking up uh, words of the Lord Jesus Christ into sections uh, and not respecting the fact that he's speaking, somebody else is speaking, he's speaking, somebody else is speaking, we're not, it's not going to help to you know, string it out and not realize that this is the Lord speaking these words and this is the leper speaking these words. It is, it is the case that broken patterns may be significant. I can give you a broken pattern. Let me do it now. Come to Ephesians. Uh, sorry. Come to Revelation, to the letter to the Ephesians. It's a, it's a great one, this is. If you come to Revelation chapter 2, Have a look at the letter to the Ephesians. That's verse 1 down to, say, down to verse 5. Just have a look at the structure of thought there. Revelation 2, verse 2 down to verse 
What have you got there? What are the key words? I know thy works, thy labour, thy patience, thou canst not bear them that are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. Now look at this. And has borne, and has patience, working backwards, and for my name's sake has laboured, it's working backwards. Now what are we waiting for? Works. So it's gone. Works, labour, patience, bear, bear, patience, labour. Ah, where's the works gone? I've got a problem, says the Lord. I've got a problem with your works. I have something against you. Because you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Ah, here's the works. And do the first works. Isn't that neat? You know, the, the pattern is regular. Works, labor, patience, bear. And then there's, you've rooted out false apostles. That's the central point. Good. So you've born and you've got patience, and you've laboured, and you're expecting the Lord to say, and your works have done very well, and he says, I've got something against you. You're not doing the works that you should be doing. I think it's a stunner, because that broken pattern is what jars. You know, we used to be going along, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, ah, problem. What's the problem? They were doing the works of love. They had rooted out false doctrine, false teachers, but at the expense of jettisoning uh, the love of God in ecclesial life. They got their doctrines pure, but they were not an ecclesia that was working according to love. What an exhortation. And that structure is really put in the spotlight on that. It's not, you know, the central point was you've got rid of the false teachers. Good. But if you don't have the love that you started with, because works was the first mentioned. I know thy works. Your first love's missing. You've got a broken pattern which is speaking volume. So look, don't ever think because... It's not quite A, B, C, B, A, or A, B, C, D, B, A, or there's some, something quirky going on that you jettison it. Just think about what, what is, we're being told there. And then my last point, I think, is that the pattern should become clearer in the original language because the translation can't help but obscure a bit the word order in the original because word orders, if, you, if you're going from Welsh to English, right? Uh, instead of saying good morning in Welsh, we say morning good. Borida, morning good. That sounds really odd, doesn't it? Morning good. But in Welsh, that's, that's the norm. So imagine that in Hebrew. There's a word order which Hebrews are used to when you translate that word for word into English, 
we sometimes have to turn it around for it to sound a bit sensible. But in turning it around, you may be breaking a pattern. So, but when you go back to the original, you realize the true word order, which you can do by the online. The online Bibles do that. If you just go to the interlinear section of the online Bible, it'll give you, you know, the Hebrew and underneath word for word the English or the Greek and word for word the English. And you can just check the word order and you think, oh, that solves my little problem there. It irons out the little irritations. That, those are the uh, clues, I would say. Now, I'm going to labor the notes of caution. You need to take this with those clues. First of all, and you may have asked this yourselves, may there be more than one pattern? If two brethren come up with two different patterns for the same passage, is it possible they're both right? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, because it, we haven't had enough brethren uh, given their minds to it to really be confident that there are really two good patterns here. So I, I, it's an open question in my mind. You might answer it for me. What's that? Well, I've, I think they can overlap, and I liken it to links in a chain that you might get a pattern, and then the last line of one pattern might be the first line of the next pattern. And it sort of like hooks on these passages go through. So I think that is quite, there's a lot of examples we've got of that. And I, I think it's valid. That's why I'm not too bothered that in that uh, Matthew 13 one where you got parable at the bottom, it started a new section because I agree, but it's like a hook to the last section as well. Imbalance in the size of units may suggest we haven't quite got the structure correct. You know, if you're balancing one word against uh, a whole verse, you think, oh, is that right? But maybe it is, but I, I would just check it and think again. A definite danger, especially with the large units of Scripture. If you put them into your own words as a summary to save space, because you can't get it all on a slide. There's a real danger that you can bias what, what you're looking at. Now, if I could say, you know, here's a pattern. You say, I'm not that convinced. I say, no, no, look, that's exhortation to Timothy. That's exhortation to Timothy. I put exhortation to Timothy. Everybody looks at it and says, of course, they're balanced. They're both exhortations to Timothy. Yes, but I said they were. That's my interpretation. The word exhortation doesn't occur there or there. I said that's what it is. That's, that's the way I thought of putting it into my words. And so you can draw a pattern of your own words. Real danger. Using common words to form the chiasm is unconvincing. And look, we can force patterns. Sometimes a word is repeated and we didn't highlight it because it spoiled the pattern. So I'm having to tell myself, no, even if it spoils the pattern, if you're highlighting that word in two places, highlight it in the third place, even if that doesn't fit. Now, there's no reason why it has to fit every time a word occurs. 
Now, it, when we did Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, first part of Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you're saved occurs twice. And we haven't used that as arms of the structure. And the reason is there seems to be a better way of doing that. The second time by grace you're saved occurs, it seems to be an explanation. By grace you're saved, and that's not of yourselves, it's of God. And it's the of God that's been paralleled. That's a matter of interpretation. If the center is not the center, think again. In other words, if the center's not impactful, if it's not the pivot, if it's not really pointed, think again. But bear in mind the Esther example. Would you really think the lack of uh, sleep of a king was really such an important thing. Well, yes, when you think about it, it was the turning point. And doing this is not to be taken as you can discard all the other words and just use the center. In other words, you could uh, just take the center of stepping stones and, and march across the lake, <laughs> discarding all the other words as if they're not important. That would be disastrous. I'm certainly not suggesting that at all. We want to keep you know, the scripture, not our pattern, as the focus. And everything on the website is provisional. Everything is provisional. Nothing is definitive. I don't actually mark them in my Bible uh, often. I certainly have got no system for doing so. Actually, you know, it won't take it now. So I've got a new Bible, and I still don't know whether I'll be marking them up when I actually migrate to the new Bible. I just don't know. When we do the daily readings, I tend to now use a clean Bible without any notes at all, so that I'm not just always thinking down the same lines all the time. And absolutely do not rearrange the text. There are some writers who say, obviously, Isaiah verse whatever is out of order here because the pattern would be so much better if that verse was in a different place. Well, that's not our prerogative to do that. And unless, of course, we're talking about the English and, and the original is telling us to change it around. There are other features of the text which need to be respected. And that is something that... Uh, I haven't given a lot of attention to. There are other features like the, the voice of who's speaking. So there are uh, question and answer structures. Uh, there are debate structures. And you can't ignore those when you're looking at these patterns. Now there may be patterns within that, but that's a different thing. So let me put up one or two more and then we can break and uh, can have another sort of workshop for as long as people want to do that. I'll just show you some because it's not just they occur occasionally. The whole of Ephesians is one after the other after the other. It's true for, I believe, every book of the New Testament. We have every book except the book of Revelation and Luke up on the website at the moment. Going from the first chapter to the last chapter, right? And that's my, my belief that that's reasonable. 
draft and needing improvement, no doubt. But if you went to Ephesians, look at this. You've got the will of God there and his own will in verse 11. You've got in him there. Now, you don't think that's not so big a phrase, but in Hebrews, in him is a big phrase. But it's got that word predestinated there and predestinated there. Then it's got according to his good pleasure and according to his good pleasure. Of his will, of his will. The glory of his grace, the riches of his grace. And the center, is that a significant center? It's huge, isn't it? It's about redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. It's a very rich pattern. It's really saying that it's God's will to have purpose from the beginning to save us according to his good pleasure, of his will, by his grace, to find redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's a pattern of thought. Now, we can follow. Was that difficult? Brother Carter wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians. And this is what he says about the opening verses. He says this. It would be difficult to find anywhere else so many ideas compressed into the same number of verses as are to be found in the long sentence of 12 verses which follow the salutation of this epistle. They do not readily lend themselves to analysis. Indeed, they have been likened to the preliminary flight of the eagle, rising and wheeling round, as the idea circles round and returns to their starting point, so certain phrases recur. That is quite a remarkable observation of those verses. What's he talking about? But it's true, isn't it? If you, if you imagine, put this on its side, the ideas are circling as they rise up to heavenly places. He's quoting a writer called Robinson from way before our time. Problem with that description. It's, it's not a bad description of, of chiastic structures when you don't know chiastic structures exist. It's introverted Hebrew parallelism in a a New Testament passage. But you see what happens. As though for a while uncertain which direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. In other words, what the analogy is, is that the Apostle Paul doesn't know where he's going with this argument yet. He's circling round and round until eventually he decides to go left or right or straight on. Now that's not accurate, is it? The spirit word knows which direction it's going to go. And its direction is to go in a circle and get higher and higher and higher until it gets to the point it wants to reach, that from where, which vantage point it can see in all directions. It's not, there's no uncertainty. When an eagle catches the hot air, and so this is not uncertain. The eagle instinctively is rising up. Minimum effort Maximum advantage. No uncertainty about that. The decision will come, you know, where's the prey? 
because that's the direction he's going to go. Useful quotation because it describes the phenomena, but also I think, and I look, Brother Carter was a wonderful Bible student. He thinks it's very difficult to analyze these verses. I think they're not so difficult anymore when you realize what's happening there. And maybe, maybe, some of the things that are hard to be understood of the Apostle Paul are made harder because we're not seeing that structural development of thought where it circles round and round. If you were to say, well, why do it like that? Well, it's bringing together uh, concepts and phrases for comparison. So you might say, well, what's the glory of his grace? What's the riches of his grace? Well, that's explaining he's made us accepted in the beloved. Uh, what, what does it mean according to the good pleasure of his will? Well, he's purposed it in himself that in the dispensation of fullness of times he might gather together one in Christ. Yeah. Certainly it's easy, but it's easier than just thinking of it as uh, frequent repetition in a line of thought. It's not a line of thought. It's a cycle of thought. So one would expect the second half of Ephesians 1 to be similarly uh, constructed, really. I'm not sure that I've got this one right at all, but I notice in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, the concept of working all things, and at the end of the chapter, certainly you've got a lot of working and a lot of all things. So that the idea of working all things, you get at the beginning and you get at the end of that section. We have then verse 12, who first trusted or hoped in Christ. Well, that word hope reoccurs down here. Uh, and then we have the work of the Spirit. Possibly the center of this is uh, the Apostle Paul's concern for the Ephesians themselves. Because that's what that half of the chapter is about. It's saying, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, we have got the benefits of the spirit gifts of Pentecost. I want you to have the benefits. I, I want to come to you. I want to help you. I want to give you, by the laying of your hands, further spiritual benefits. I have you in my heart. I'm concerned about your welfare. I want you to grow in grace and understanding. How do they grow? How do they grow in understanding? in wisdom and revelation. That's the gift of the Spirit he's talking about. He's talking about New Testament prophets. Right? They received it at Pentecost. He wants to be able to get to them, to pass that on by the laying on of hands. So the first chapter, I would believe, is made up of two parts. The first half, if I was putting a chapter division, I'd put it somewhere in the middle of the chapter, and I would say the first half is the Apostle Paul, through the Spirit, emphasizing to us that it's God's good pleasure from the beginning, purposed in himself, predestinated us to be reconciled through his son, through the forgiveness of sins. And that to understand that wonderful purpose, the Spirit has revealed his word through prophets and apostles, and the apostle wants the Ephesians to be enriched further by their knowledge and understanding of those things. So we're starting to see what a chapter is about 
Then it goes into chapter two, at which point I stop and say, why don't we collectively round the tables in a workshop, uh, have a look at Ephesians chapter two and see if we could make progress on that and just uh, to reinforce the concept um, and test it out. And it's, it's a fantastic study. The more brethren that are familiar with it, the more we test out how important it is. I'm not going to tell you it's the most important thing ever discovered. I do think it is a revelation. Somebody's just drawn the, drawn the curtains and there's a window. And I now have a view I never thought existed. I had no conception of what it looked like out of that window. Didn't even know there was a window there. Now all of a sudden, it's given us, it's like a great point. Say, hey, Steve, that's the point. <laughs> Get your head around, that's the point. And it's not me thinking, mm, what shall I say the point is? <laughs> it's the scripture saying, listen, there's the point. All right? So that's where the power comes. It's actually God speaking to us through his word, telling us, I want you to understand this letter. Uh, I want you to know that you're reconciled to God through the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that it's by grace you're saved. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ who has put the enmity to death in his own body, that that's possible. And you to build upon him because he's the foundation. So it puts the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely central to understanding what the Apollo is talking about. So we now sleep on that <laughs> and uh, come back refreshed for another aspect of our approach to Scripture, which is the connections between different passages of Scripture and how we handle those.